Welcome to Shelf Marks. The discussion you're about to hear is taken from our Culture Night Special 2021. If you'd like to watch the video version, it's available on ria.ie forward slash shelfmarks and you'll see a link to the YouTube version. Future audio episodes of the series will be available wherever you get your podcasts and on the Royal Irish Academy website. Hello and welcome to Shelf Marks. I'm Zoe Cummins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. This is a Culture Night special to launch this series of podcasts. The series focuses on Irish writing and the natural world. Of course, we would have loved to have been there in the reading room of the library in the Academy with all of you as our live audience. But even in September 2021, it's still not quite possible. Fortunately, with the aid of technology and funding from the Arts Council Literature Project Award, this discussion and series will reach many more online. A quick note about the upcoming series. Over the next couple of months, each episode will be inspired by items, shelf marks, if you will, from the collection at the Royal Irish Academy. And in each episode, a guest writer will chat to me about their own experience of the natural world. Shelfmarks has commissioned new writing for this series that takes a prompt from the people who've passed through the Academy and the collections themselves. And writers will include Amanda Bell, Kerry Nagukadig, uh, Manco McGann, Siobhan Mannion, Jane Clark and Neil Hegarty. And in the coming weeks, you'll hear much more uh, from them. But in this episode, it's a slightly different format. I'm going to try to get a handle on nature writing as it was when the Academy opened in 1785. And... Uh, up to now and how writing about the natural world has changed over the centuries. We're going to hear a little history about some of the texts here in the RIA, about some of the naturalists and members who've been part of the Academy, and you'll get a sense of the arc of writing about the natural world, but also how the landscape and wildlife of Ireland itself has changed over the centuries. And I'm joined by a lovely panel of people, including Lucy Collins, who's Associate Dean at Graduate in University College Dublin and also Associate Professor of Modern Poetry. And very relevant uh, to us for this chat, Lucy co-edited with Andrew Carpenter the anthology The Irish Poet and the Natural World. And it's an anthology of verse in English from the Tudors to the Romantics, and it's published by Cork University Press. And she's also a co-founder of the Irish Poetry Reading Archive, which is a national digital repository. And also joined by Connor W. O'Brien, who's the author of two books, Ireland Through Birds, which is a journey around Ireland uh, through the four seasons and in search of 12 of our rarest and most elusive birds. And also his second book, most recently, is Life in Ireland, A Short History of a Long Time. And it is a long time. It's a story of half a billion years in the making from the first fossils to the present day. And a little later on, we'll be hearing from Niall Williams and Christine Breen, who have written a memoir of their year in their garden in Kiltumper. And on screen, you'll also see we're joined by Declan Brennan and Derv Lacrotti, who will read for us. So, Lucy, I'm just going to start with you. For those who might not be familiar with the Royal Irish Academy, the, um, can you give us a little introduction to it? And I suppose its importance when it comes to the collections and preserving what we know about Ireland uh, and our social and scientific history. Yeah, sure. Well, the Royal Irish Academy is Ireland's foremost learned body. And it was founded in, seven, in 1785, as you mentioned, uh, with Lord Charlemont as its first president. 
And it had the aim from the beginning of promoting uh, the sciences, the polite literatures uh, and antiquities, the study and preservation of these uh, in Ireland. And so in that sense, it has two roles. It has a role uh, collecting manuscripts and scientific collections uh, and also books. But it also has a very important role in encouraging discourse and debate, particularly across those disciplines. And I think that's really the most important thing for us, perhaps, uh, tonight, is that sense of its interdisciplinary potential and the kind of conversations that the Academy hosts and encourages. And it's so interesting, having spent time in there, it really is, you know, chock full of manuscripts and books. Um, but interestingly, the first uh, manuscript in Irish to be donated to the Academy in 1785, which is the year that it was founded, is the Book of Ballymote. And that's such an important manuscript. It's a 14th century text and it covers just so many different uh, areas of life, Irish history, law, folklore classical texts and lots, lots more. But it also, importantly, contains a reference to one of the most famous Irish nature poems, The Blackbird of Belfast Loch. And this is a very, very short poem. It's less than 30 words, but we're going to have a quick listen to it here, read by Dervla Crotty. Blackbird by Belfast Loch. What little throat has framed that note? What Gold beak shot it far away. A blackbird on his leafy throne tossed it alone across the bay. And that's a translation by Frank O'Connor. Um, Lucy, this is a really short poem. Um, but why um, the blackbird? Uh, why is the blackbird and other birds? Why do they resonate down through the centuries and in Irish writing? Because Irish writing is littered with birds and particularly the blackbird. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this particular poem, for all its brevity and simplicity, is, is quite a complex poem, uh, particularly because it has two lives. So it has a life in the Irish language uh, and then a later life uh, in English. And the most important thing I think about that poem is the way in which the bird functions to alert us to the importance of music in poetry. Um, so to poetry as a verbal art, uh, but a musical art uh, as well. Now, across history, obviously, the blackbird has featured in very different ways in Irish poetry. Uh, one way it's featured actually is, is politically. Um, in the 17th and early 18th century, for example, the blackbird is a figure in Jacobite poetry. It represents James I. And so it has this kind of political resonance. So you'll see a kind of a, a concentration of blackbird poems, perhaps in, in that period. But arguably, I think the uh, what I mentioned about this poem is more important in terms of the legacy of bird representation in Irish poetry, because it's so often used as a way of thinking about the figure of the poet himself or herself uh, and the idea of the poem as a form uh, of expression. So in the 18th century in Ireland, we'll often find uh, the bird represented in both its wild and caged forms. And in that way, we find this juxtaposition between the idea of the bird as an emblem of freedom and of containment. And that, of course, combines, in a sense, both the political reading, but also the idea of 
really man's engagement with the natural world uh, and his thoughts on on those questions of yeah of wildness and domesticity I suppose and it's some of those elements I think especially around the wildness of the bird that a later poets like Heaney for example will pick up and you know uh, there's blackbirds everywhere they're not a rare bird uh, at all in Ireland but Connor in your own book Ireland Through Birds you recount the story of Saint Kevin and the blackbird which is one that some people may know, but it tells us a lot about the Glendalough Valley and the kind of the story that we learn about that area and, and birds most closely associated with it. Yes, definitely. I mean, the story of Kevin, really, he was um, a man who obviously loved nature very much, which is why he chose Glendalough to be, you know, the, the seat of, of his, you know, religious retreat. And the story of Kevin and the Blackbird is, of course, one of the more famous uh, legends associated with them. So in, in a nutshell, how it goes is that Kevin reached out his hand and the Blackbird landed on his hand and laid an egg in it. And uh, Kevin, I suppose, in his, um, you know, due to his benevolent late nature, let, far from crushing the egg in his hand, just let the egg hatch and let it uh, come to uh, come to maturity so that the bird could then fly off and had to adapt his whole life around the uh, handicap of having this uh, bird maturing within his hand. But um so quite a fa- an interesting legend, I suppose, and you know uh, a really interesting sort of uh, sort of tidbit from from Irish uh, from Irish history. And uh, you know the the, the Glendalough Valley isn't just um, famous for the blackbird, but also the goosander. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the goosander is a very large species of duck. It's a it's a um, fish eating duck, so quite different from the uh, bread eating uh, ones that you'll find on your local pond. Um, it only it's a very recent uh, colonist of Ireland and um, they only started breeding within the Wicklow Mountains in the early 1990s and they've been they've managed to maintain a stronghold there ever since um, partially due to uh, very strong conservation efforts and help from the National Parks and Wildlife Service who have erected uh, nest boxes for them because despite being quite a large bird and not particularly arboreal they do actually breed within tree holes which uh, aren't overly abundant they need quite specific conditions in which to breed typically trees that are overlooking uh, fast-flowing rivers into which their chicks can fall without hitting the ground. And so these specific conditions can be quite hard to find. So erecting nest boxes in trees and actually putting uh, sheets of metal around said trees to prevent pine martens from accessing the nest boxes has helped the goosander somewhat and uh, Glendalock has turned into a little bit of a stronghold for them. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's con- conservation projects in action, really, isn't it? Yeah. When I was uh, reading your book, um, Life in Ireland, which is a short history of a long time, it became really, you know, clear to me that Ireland, you know, obviously we walk around it and, you know, we can see it's different. But how is it different to, say, the UK or continental Europe geographically and and what we have here? Why is it so unique? There's, well, there's a few features of the Irish landscape that make it different um, or really that make it special. I suppose one would be the um, prevalence of bogs. So, Ireland is the most important country in Europe for what's called blanket bogs. So there's two types of bogs in Ireland. There's blanket bogs and raised bogs. Blanket bogs are typically found in mountainous areas and very waterlogged peat and also along the west coast. Ireland has about 8%. Despite being such a tiny, tiny island, we actually have 8% of the whole world's blanket bogs. So we're the most important country in Europe for this very specific habitat type. Our raised bogs, which are the bogs that predominate in the Midlands, are among the oldest living ecosystems in the world. They trace right back to the end of the last ice age and the lakes that were formed by retreating glaciers. So those are just two examples of the kind of unique landscape that we have and uh, why we should try to cherish and preserve it as best we can. 
And you detail some of the amazing fossil finds that we've had in Ireland um, over the past few years, including on Valencia Island. Yes, absolutely. So um, Valencia Island really is a, a home to a landmark in not just the history of life in Ireland, but the history of life in the world, which is the Valencia Island Trackway. Uh, this was left by a tetrapod, which is a four-legged uh, backboned animal about 385 million years ago, uh, which was a crucial point in the history of life on Earth, which was when vertebrate animals, which is backboned animals like ourselves, started to leave the water for the first time and crawl out onto land. Uh, the kind of primordial image of, you know, the fish leaving the water and then amphibians, reptiles, mammals, birds, etc. stemming from that. Uh, so the Valencia Island trackway was actually left by one of these very, very primitive tetrapods uh, nearly 400 million years ago. It was the oldest tetrapod trackway known in the whole world until an older one was actually found in Poland in 2009. So still very, very old and very, very important to science and uh, provides a glimpse into a landmark moment in the history of evolution. How, how big were tetrapods? Well, this particular one was about a metre long, uh, about a third of which would have been tail. So it would have, have been, it would have looked very much like a salamander, this creature. Um, it would have had a long kind of paddle-like tail that would have looked um, somewhat like a tadpole's, um, would have been very slimy, would have not been a very good walker. It would have been much more at home in the water than on land because it was a, really a very, very primitive creature. Um, that's really all that is known about it. No fossil bones have been found at the site, so scientists can only really um, uh, estimate its appearance based on uh, other more complete fossil uh, bones that have been found elsewhere. I'm going to jump forward quite a few centuries from the tetrapod now, um, back to you know when the Royal Irish Academy was founded. Um, in the 1780s, uh, Lucy, what was the general attitude towards the natural world and what were writers writing about at this time? Well, within scholarly communities, there was always the determination to advance knowledge. And so that meant, you know, engagement with scientific, uh, early scientific research in particular. But if we go back to the 17th century, you know, that's really the era of the polymath. So you have people engaging with philosophy, history, early science, uh, but no sense that of a need for specialist knowledge, really, or people engaging across those fields. Um, but with the foundation of the Dublin Philosophical Society in 1683, you see more kind of segregation of those areas and a deepening um, scientific engagement. But that didn't always translate into popular writing. So if we think of something like um, Oliver Goldsmith's uh, History of Earth and Animated Nature, uh, that was an eight volume, amazingly successful publication. Um, but Goldsmith wasn't doing original research there. He was really just compiling um, a lot of existing research and thinking in that work. Um, and that was a very popular uh, work. In terms of literature in the mid 18th century, you're looking at what we would call a period of the poetics of sensibility, where there's a lot more attention on ideas of emotion, on how humans feel about the natural world. Um, and so an element of reflection on our responsibilities within uh, the, the larger natural world, I think, is emerging um, at that point. And it's also important because of the rise of, of scientific thinking, we find um, in a sense that writers are coming out of the library, if you like. So they're less influenced by preceding texts and traditions, and they're more influenced by the experience of nature and direct engagement with nature. Um, and that all obviously means that, you know, creative writing, if you like, or literature is dovetailing with some scientific developments. But it also um, is 
interesting for another reason, I think. Um, it's a kind of democratic uh, development whereby working class people were writing texts, were engaging with their own experience of nature. So in a way, it's reaching out beyond a kind of learned or educated community towards a much um, kind of wider group. And that in turn then uh, links, I suppose, to the politics um, surrounding land at that time. So the sense in which, you know, people like um, Lawrence White or Oliver Goldsmith were writing about landlordism, were writing about the responsibilities of land ownership. And Oliver Goldsmith obviously saw and the, the ills developing from careless landlords who were um, extracting resources uh, from the land and the money was coming, you know, the value, if you like, was leaving Ireland. Uh, and this, in a way, was the ruination in Goldsmith's uh, uh, idea of, of the country. And this was directly reflected in the shape of the landscape at that time. Yeah, and in your anthology, The Irish Poet and the Natural World, you include The Deserted Village, which Oliver Goldsmith wrote in the 1770. And, you know, the village of the title of The Deserted Village might be, for all we know, a composite of villages here and in England, but it really it kind of gives us a good sense of the landscape and the wildlife and the people and the difficulties of life. Um, I, I think maybe we'll hear a little bit of that from Declan Brennan uh, and we'll chat again. This is uh, The Deserted Village, read by Declan Brennan. Sweet smiling village, loveliest of the lawn, thy sports are fled and all thy charms withdrawn. Amidst thy bowers the tyrant's hand is seen, and desolation saddens all thy green. One only master grasps the whole domain, and half a tillage stints thy smiling plain. No more thy glassy brook reflects the day, but choked with sedges works its weedy way. Along thy glades, a solitary guest, the hollow-sounding bittern guards its nest. Amidst thy desert walks, the lapwing flies and tires their echoes with unvaried cries. Sunk are thy bowers in shapeless ruin all, and the long grass o'ertops the mouldering wall, and trembling, Shrinking from the spoiler's hand far, far away, thy children leave the land. Um, it, it gives us a good sense of, you know, the social and political and agrarian sort of problems of that time. And a little bit later than this, um, well, you know, 70 years later, the first female honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy is Mariah Edgeworth. And she's she's. Um, uh, dealing with some of similar issues, isn't she? She's known for her novels such as Castle Rackrent and The Absentee. Um, and there's those questions in those novels, aren't there, about the legitimacy of land ownership and landlords. Um, so really, at that time, it seems that our writing about nature is linked very heavily to the politics and the culture of the period. Yes, it certainly is. Um, and arguably, it's impossible to really disentangle the representation of nature and representation of land from politics in Ireland over, you know, a very long period. Um, Edgeworth was very preoccupied by landlordism. And it's interesting, actually, if we think if we compare Goldsmith and Edgeworth, you know, that sense of the, the length of time uh, through which those preoccupations remained and shadowed writing of all kinds, you know, obviously both prose and poetry um, during the period. But occasionally there was also a sense in which um, writers use nature as a way uh, of, I suppose, um, 
uh, getting a break from uh, political uh, questions as well. Uh, there's some very interesting examples. One would be um, Joseph Atkinson's poem, um, Killarney, uh, which is a poem that he wrote twice. Uh, he wrote it first in 1769, and then he wrote it again 30 years later in 1798, which, of course, is a resonant year if we think of, of revolution and, and agitation in Ireland. Um, but it's interesting that in that poem, where you know he really thinks uh, he thinks about nature as a zone of peace and as a, a zone away from politics in many ways, and um, and that you know he sees it as a retreat uh, as well as uh, you know um, a, a place where clearly uh, if he is looking around him and he's engaging with the the actual condition of Ireland at the time, it's clearly one of political upheaval. So there's this very interesting sense in which some writers are are really marking that sense of the politics of land ownership and others are in fact uh, quite deliberately evading it in their work. And you mentioned Killarney which you know just as the academy is opening and in those following years Killarney is opening up as a tourist destination and we know now you know that Killarney is really unique and maybe if we could roll back time in terms of the landscape there um, it would do it some good. So Connor you know if this is um, what are the other concerns around this time uh, you know in the 1780s 1800s it's agriculture is well underway um, how are the forests they're, they're not doing so well at this point are they? No Ireland's forests weren't doing particularly well at that point so um, just to kind of give a, a brief overview, um, Ireland naturally would have been a very, very forested landscape, up to 80% native forest cover, primarily deciduous forest, but then also uh, with some uh, evergreen, such as Scots pine as well. Um, so it, the, the legend has it that you could go from Malinhead to Mizzenhead uh, without emerging from the shade of the trees, that a squirrel could cross from coast to coast without having to touch the ground. That's how dense uh, the forest cover in Ireland was. Um, this started to change rapidly and um, obviously with the onset of farming, you saw the first kind of clearances of forests, but it didn't really kick off until the 1600s when you started seeing uh, more large scale plantations of, of Ireland and subsequent clearances of the forest. So between 1600 and the year 1800, Ireland's forest cover fell from around 12% to only 2%. And there are a number of different reasons for this, obviously to clear the land for farming. Um, displaced Irish people would have taken a refuge in the forest and then used them as a base from which to strike back. So obviously they needed to be cleared to get rid of that. And then there was an economic imperative as well for this. So uh, wood would have been exported to Britain. Um, charcoal was needed to make leather. And then obviously the timber would have been needed to construct houses and boats. So all of these kind of factors contributed to the decline of Ireland's native forest so that really by uh, the beginning of the 1800s and even earlier than that into the 1700s, what had once been a very verdant forested landscape had been almost completely denuded. And so with that sort of uh, deforestation, you're, it's going to have a huge impact, isn't it, on wildlife? And again, in and around that period, there, there's there's lots of last sightings of wolves in Ireland. But one of the last, last sightings of wolves was in Mount Leinster just a year after the academy opened. No connection, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, what what happened to the wolves at this point? They they, they just disappeared. Well, the decline of the wolf in Ireland to a large extent kind of followed the decline of the forest. So what happened was um, with with the arrival of uh, new settlers into Ireland, they were quite shocked to find that wolves were actually very, very prevalent here, much more so than in Britain. Uh, the wolf had fared much better in Ireland than it had in Britain, largely because um, the native Gaelic Irish had a, 
probably a more um, respectful attitude towards wolves than than they received in Britain. They were perceived, they were hunted, but more for recreation rather than for extermination. But obviously with um, the onset of new uh, political power structures in Ireland, wolves were perceived as a threat both to people and to livestock. So you saw the importation of professional wolf hunters. You saw increasing bounties being placed upon wolves, professional hunting parties being put into place. And with these practices, you saw the extermination of wolves from county after county until the very last one was shot on the slopes of Mount Leinster in County Carlow in 1786. And um, which was really um, a very sad, sad moment for Ireland because it meant the loss of our largest terrestrial land predator, our apex land predator. And uh, apex predators, as is well known, have a huge impact upon the ecosystems. Um, so, uh, so the loss of wolves really was was a was a huge uh, of huge detriment to to our natural world. And it's it's amazing to think that in England they had disappeared three hundred years beforehand, and in Scotland about a hundred years beforehand. So really, it was a unique environment here. Um, uh, but the wolf, Lucy, really plays into our literary imagination, doesn't it? It's there in our old manuscripts, um, and it's it's just a it's a very symbolic, isn't it, in terms of how people use it in writing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, lost or endangered creatures, you know, do have that imaginative hold on writers uh, and, and poets, you know, throughout history. Um, but the wolf has a special place, certainly in Irish folklore and mythology. Um, as you mentioned, um, it's there in the tales. It's there in the Fianna, for example, where um, they're described uh, hunting wolves. And there's even instances in which, you know, wolf-like characteristics are transposed to other creatures or humans. So, for example, Cucullin's dog Bran is kind of pictured as having these wolf-like um, characteristics. So they're kind of woven through narratives in, in different ways. Um, there is some ambiguity, though, I suppose, because in, in some senses they're seen as a threat, you know, and they're, so they're seen as um, generating fear in, in the, the listener or the reader. Um, but in other cases, they're also seen as having a power that can be harnessed. So almost like this kind of supernatural dimension um, that can be harnessed by uh, by humans. And to go back to, to what Connor was saying there, um, you know, the sense in which um, Ireland did not have many predators, but that, you know, the wolf was the key and um, the key one, I think, is something that exercised um, English writers. So Fines Morrison, for example, mentions wolves in that um, in that respect. And there's also other interesting examples like um, uh, wolves appear in the Sweeney, the Tales of Mad Sweeney, for example. And also if we, if we move to a slightly more modern example um, in the work of Emily Lawless, who writes about um, 16th century rebellion in her poem, um, Dirge of the Mon- Monster Forest. Um, and there she specifically invokes uh, the wolves. And that speaks to that, that point that Connor made about the wolves being associated with forested places and therefore the fact that that rebels or outlaws and wolves were occupying that same that same space. And this is something which, you know, more more modern poets, contemporary poets have picked up on. Um, Ivan Boland, for example, has has used the wolf in that way in her work. And actually, we're going to hear um, Derv Lacrotti read some lines from Limits, one from Ivan Boland's collection Code, which is published by Carcanet in 2001. And she, uh, Ivan Boland herself was actually a Royal Irish Academy member since um, 2017. Limits one, Ivan Boland. 
so high in their leafy silence over Kells, over Durrow, as the Vikings raged south, the old monks made the alphabet wild. They dipped iron into azure and indigo. They gave strange wings to their O's and E's. Their vowels clung on with talons and the thin ribbed wolves which had gone north left their frozen winters and were lured back to their consonants. I love that imagery there of the, the scribes and the manuscripts, um, uh, you know, combined together. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of debate about the reintroduction of wolves. Is it is it really far fetched to think that they could come back, Connor? It's a, it's a topic that really elicits strong emotions from both sides. And it's, it's not hard to see why. I mean, it would be, it's almost, they've been gone for so long. It's so hard to even picture them in an Irish landscape now. And um, I think people had justifiable concerns about whether or not it would work. Um, personally, I, I can't see it happening. Um, I just don't think the tide of public opinion is there. And I would question myself and I'm certainly open to being wrong on this but I would question whether or not they there's sufficient space for them and it, you know whether so it's it's a big it's a big debate um I I can't see it happening personally but I mean who knows what the future could hold I mean you know there was a time when it wouldn't have been feasible for them to have been reintroduced into somewhere like Yellowstone and it did happen and it worked very well so who knows possibly it could it could happen here somewhere like the Wicklow Mountains National Park. Uh, there's certainly no shortage of prey for them up there. So maybe if, maybe it would be a success. I think that uh, viral video of uh, Yellowstone Park was really, you know, got people thinking, didn't it? Because there's a very well-known uh, video online that shows how the reintroduction of wolves changed the entire ecosystem of Yellowstone Park and whether it can happen here or not, I guess the jury is out. But you know, it's great to see that people are using those images of wolves like in Wolfwalkers in the film that we saw uh, from Cartoon Saloon over the last uh, year or two, you know, that the image is still there and it's still um, still a very popular image and it has it still just holds so much meaning. Um, actually, Connor has written a short essay on wolves for this Shelf Marks podcast, and it will be available online on the Shelf Marks podcast in the coming weeks. So you should keep an ear out for that. Um so, you know, the, the the naturalists and scientists that have passed through the academy over the years um, and uh, who are very linked with, with the place will be covered as well on shelf marks in the next couple of months. And you'll be finding out about people like the dragonfly specialist Cynthia Longfield, about people like Robert Lloyd Prager, Ellen Hutchins, ornithologists like uh, R.M. Barrington and geologists like Richard Kerwin. Um, and you'll get to know these names a little bit better over the series. Uh, in your own treks around Ireland for Ireland Through Birds, Connor, you headed west to the islands. Um, and in fact, Prager, who I just mentioned, also spent time on Inish Turk. What brought you there? Um, so I went to Inish Turk in search of a bird called the Great Skewer, which is a very big, very aggressive uh, seabird, um, which I found out firsthand when I found myself having to run from two of them which is the first time I've ever had to run from any wild animal. And um, hopefully the last time, um, I don't think Mr. Prager encountered any of them during his, um, his expedition there. But um, in, a, in a time when we're really seeing a lot of our breeding birds kind of go receding, it's always very welcome when another bird starts to breed in Ireland. And the great skua is one of those in recent years, they've started to breed 
along some of the more remote islands of the west coast and um, so you know yeah long way it remains so hopefully they'll be able to establish a, a strong foothold there and uh, and kick on from there and people associate Cape Clear don't they with um, interesting species but Inish Turk seems to hold a lot as well almost undiscovered well, it could, it very well could. I mean, one of the things about Cape Clear is Cape Clear is obviously well known for uh, incredible sea watching at this time of year. You never know what kind of uh, seabirds you might see off the coast. And then obviously you have the possibility of incredible um, uh, birds arriving from North America as well, extremely rare vagrants. But that can happen all along the west coast of Ireland when you get the right weather conditions, you can get birds blown over from the American continent and Ireland, of course, of course, is the first place where they make landfall. And who knows, Inish Turk um, isn't an island that attracts a huge amount of attention from bird watchers. So it's quite possible that there could be birds there that arrive during autumn that go overlooked. One of uh, one of the reasons I came to the Royal Irish Academy kind of p- papers was an edition of Robert Lloyd Prager's um, The Way That I Went. And that's been a book that's been influential for you as well, Connor, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about it and and how it's influenced you. Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, Prager's writings have been always been very interesting, obviously, in terms of someone who is interested in the natural world like myself and especially within an Irish context. And particularly for researching my last book, Life in Ireland, it was really interesting to me to read about the great hawk, which is a bird that's fascinated me for a very long time. Uh, This was the only flightless bird that we had in Ireland. Um, it became extinct in around the year 1844. It was when the last pair were caught in Iceland and the last Irish great hawk was caught in 1834. And that specimen is actually in a Trinity College Dublin in the zoology collection there at the moment. Um, but uh, Prager records how remains of the great hawk were found in kitchen middens around the coast of Ireland in places like County Waterford, County Clare and further north from there. So it was uh, just really interesting to me to hear how prevalent that they, they might have been um, in um, Neolithic times, and perhaps even more recent than that. But very tragically, we don't have them with us anymore. And in uh, Prager's, you know, one of the original, uh, one of the early editions of the way that I went. When you open it at the back, there's actually a map of Wall of Ireland, and in the very corner is. Uh, an illustration in the sort of Waterford area just off the coast of Waterford with a stone that's illustrated and it says beside it the all alone stone which I just think is you know I think it's a reference to um, a Charles Kingsley uh, book but it's a it's a real sort of metaphor for what's happened isn't it? Yes it is absolutely so uh, that was a reference to uh, the Charles Kingsley book The Water Babies in which uh, the last great hawk is sat on the all alone stone basically lamenting the loss of its kind and um, really, since its extinction, it's become an icon. Uh, it's become kind of an icon of extinction. The great hawk has on par with the with the dodo, and probably more so for a European culture because it was a species that was very much uh, prevalent and very well known to European sailors. So uh, its loss was kind of mo- much more keenly felt. It was also a bird of huge economic um, significance because its feathers were very highly cherished for things like uh, pillows and for bedding and even for fashion. And this was uh, one of the main factors that contributed to its decline. And it, it, it looked kind of, like, kind of like a penguin, a big... It looked kind of like a penguin. It was actually the original penguin, uh, funnily enough. So uh, the word penguin is thought to come from the Welsh uh, penguin, which means a white head, which was the name initially given to the great auk. So how it's thought that modern penguins got their name from sailors, obviously from Europe, um, arriving into the southern hemisphere and seeing birds very similar to the great auks that they were familiar with back home and give, applying the name penguin to them. 
So those birds became known as the penguins we've known to, we now know today. And the great auk uh, is now known as the great auk, but it went by a number of different names um, depending on which population you're talking about. To Irish sailors, it was on Falkirk Moor. Um, to Welsh sailors, it was the penguin. And then to Icelandic people, it was called the Gairfowl or the Gairfugl. So it had very many names depending on which sailors uh, encountered it across its range of the North Atlantic. No, no sailors anymore, unfortunately. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, what is held in the Royal Irish Academy is, um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, details of naturalists who are exploring Ireland and the world, um, discovering landscape, they're cataloguing, they're writing about it. But Lucy, apart from, you know, that side of it, and we've just discussed a little bit of poetry um, and perhaps as a backdrop to fiction writing, where are, you know, how rich is the tradition of writing about nature in Ireland and are there gaps uh, in, in what we've done over the past centuries? Well, I guess the the writing about nature obviously has evolved, you know, as we've just been talking about, I suppose, in different forms over the centuries. Uh, and after the Act of Union in 1801, for example, um, and, you know, Ireland's relationship, obviously, uh, to England changes dramatically. And one of the things that happens there is that Ireland becomes a site for travellers, particularly uh, from England. Now, obviously, it always had been to a certain degree, but the nature of that uh, travel changes. Now, the west of Ireland, um, later on, of course, in the revivalist period in the early 20th century, the west of Ireland becomes this iconic uh, landscape of national identity. Uh, but even before that, you know, it becomes a really important site for travellers. And one of the reasons, I think, why Ireland becomes very important and why travel writing becomes a, an important genre at this stage is that um, Ireland is seen as relatively accessible for English travellers. So um, when during a time of war in Europe, for example, particularly writers and artists who would have gone to Europe are instead turning to, turning to Ireland for inspiration. Um, uh, but there is this kind of, um, I suppose, a tension in a sense between Ireland being uh, billed, you know, or marketed as on the one hand, a kind of exotic location, you know, a location of wildness um, for travellers, but then on the other hand, seen as comparatively safe as, you know, well, English speaking in the main, uh, you know, and it's quite interesting to sort of see that early uh, tourist marketing of Ireland um, in that way. And that gave rise, of course, to um, a greater number of women travellers, of course, in the 19th century coming to Ireland uh, and also uh, travelling around Ireland, including, you know, Irish women who were born here. Um, and that created, I suppose, a, a different kind of text emerging during that time. So, Women um, travel writers were often very attuned to the relationship between community and landscape, uh, and they often engaged very much with um, with the local populace. Um, perhaps an exception to that is Queen Victoria, who um, on her visit to Ireland, you know, remarked uh, at one point on its its sort of lush vegetation, but was perturbed by I think what she described it as the shrieks of the people. So she was quite disturbed by her encounter with Irish people, but rather more um, impressed by parts of its landscape. Um, but certainly travel writing did, as a genre, did enable, you know, a much wider engagement uh, with landscape, both by uh, non-Irish uh, visitors and, uh, and Irish people too. And you you um, introduced me to a writer called Agnes O'Farrelly, who uh, wrote, um, who actually stayed in the same cottage as Singh, um, 
uh, and her her thoughts are written down on um, by uh, on thoughts on Aaron, which is a we don't have time for a piece uh, in this conversation, but I'll put a piece on the shelf marks um, uh, site itself, and there's just a, a small piece there published by Arlen House. So uh, yeah, it's it, it's. It seems that there's been kind of a, a, a movement from scientific writing based on observation and that systematic study, practical information. And then we have this sort of uh, a backdrop for literature and, uh, and travel writing, as you mentioned. But there's very little really that seems to illuminate personal experience within the landscape. Um, but we do see it when we come into sort of the 20th century poets, don't we, Lucy, that things starting to change in terms of how the writer is putting themselves into the landscape. Yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, we have seen obviously various kinds of engagement between individual humans and their landscapes throughout the centuries. But I think particularly uh, contemporary writers uh, have partly, I think, because of, you know, clearly a, a heightened sense of our responsibility towards um, the natural environment, have reflected this more fully in their work. But I think even if we think about the way uh, writers' uh, work has evolved, say, throughout their career, um, it can be interesting how their attitudes towards um, nature and landscape have changed. So, I mean, if you were to take a writer like uh, John McGarren, for example, um, you know, he's very much associated with the representation of rural Ireland but his his last novel that they may face the rising sun for example has a much more intense personal engagement with um, the experience of nature on the part of the protagonist so this really heightened sense of of the beauty and really i think the endangered um character of of rural life in ireland and the same could be said of a poet like michael longley for example who you know since the 80s has been writing really concertedly about about a single place effectively about Carrigskiwan in the West and that idea that he would return again and again to this place and would write about its landscape, would write about particular creatures, uh, birds and animals there. Um, and the idea that this would not be, you know, repetitive, if you like, it would be part of his poetic purpose would be to, to revisit, re-engage, to be attentive um, to those landscapes and creatures. Um, and I think contemporary writers are much more attuned to that need perhaps than their uh, than their predecessors and we might think, you know, also, of course, of a, a Royal Irish Academy member, um, Seamus Heaney, you know, who we would identify obviously very strongly with in engagement with nature. And there, you know, Heaney's work, I think, in, in a sense, to come full circle, as opposed to something I, I said about the Academy uh, at the beginning, that idea that his work, you know, weaves together uh, history, uh, geography, uh, politics and nature in really subtle ways, I think is very important. And an, another important thing about his work, I think, is that he's really aware of the fact that nature can sometimes resist representation or easy representation in language. So uh, a poem like The Peninsula, for example, um, you know, speaks of that, you know, it speaks of this sense of the poet as, you know, when he has nothing more to say, you know, he goes out into the landscape and particularly into this kind of marginal liminal landscape. Um, and there there is a sense that nature, you know, is more than just, you know, the, part of the poet's expressive needs, you know, that it exists as this really powerful uh, entity, this really, you know, an entity that exists through time, that inspires through time. Um, and I think he expresses it really powerfully in that poem. 
And you've actually done my job for me here. So that's brilliant, Lucy. We're going to hear a piece of The Peninsula by Shane Massini. And I think it, it also kind of offers um, a solution to writer's block and fertile ground itself for words. So read here by Declan Brennan again. When you have nothing more to say, just drive for a day all around the peninsula. The sky is tall as over a runway, the land without marks. So you will not arrive, but pass through, though always skirting landfall. At dusk, horizons drink down sea and hill. The ploughed field swallows the whitewashed gable, and you're in the dark again. Now recall the glazed foreshore and silhouetted log, that rock where breakers shredded into rags, the leggy birds stilted on their own legs, islands riding themselves out into the fog and drive back home. Still with nothing to say, except that now you will uncode all landscapes by this. Things founded clean on their own shapes, water, and ground in their extremity. Thanks so much for reading, uh, Declan. And waiting very patiently, I have to say, for the last while um, through this discussion have been Niall Williams and Christine Breen. Niall Williams is the author of Four Letters of Love and the Booker Longlisted History of the Rain, and most recently, the novel This Is Happiness. And Christine Breen is the author of Her Name is Rose. And in their new book, which they've co-authored in Kiltumper, it's a memoir of life in rural Ireland, and it's a meditation on the power and beauty and the importance of the natural world. Welcome to Shelf Marks, both of you. Um, um, Oh, great. So, um, <laughs> you don't you don't get off that lightly, I'm afraid. Um, uh, Christine and Niall, you've been living in Kiltumper for more than 30 years. What what brought you there, Christine? Uh, after Niall and I met at UCD, both doing masters and he and American literature, me and Irish literature, um, I found out that the my father's first cousin who lived in the house, so Breens have always lived here, passed away. So I told my father and he decided to buy the farm. Um, and then it was vacant for five years. So Niall and I wanted to write and paint. And so we moved here to a four room cottage with, that's it. We moved here it. with no money and <laughs> yeah, Breens Breens had been living in the space for 200 years. Um, but it was vacant for maybe five or six years before we moved here. Um, basically with the idea just of living one year and, and writing and learning how to write and seeing uh, how we could get on doing that. And 36 years later, we're still doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm going to come to in uh, Kiltumper in a minute. But uh, your first novel, uh, Christine Breen, your, uh, her name is Rose. The main character, Iris, is actually a gardener. Um, and read, reading in Kiltumper and her name is Rose side by side, there are very striking similarities to your own garden. Well, yes. I mean, you know, they say write about what you know. So I know about gardening and um, I know also about adoption, which is kind of a thread in the book. And then I think in some ways I adopted this garden 
you know, the, my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. Mm. And I have adopted the garden. And it's very interesting to watch how we have so subtly changed it until it's blossomed into a completely different kind of garden. But I think my ancestors would be, they'd say, no. They'd be happy. <laughs> no, no, for you. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it, it, from the descriptions in, in Kiltumper, it's teeming with life. I mean, thousands of different types of plants and you, you tend it every day. You spend a lot of time in that space. Well, yes, thanks to uh, the pandemic. Yeah. That last we do. Two We're years. in the garden every day. <laughs> and um, yeah. And before that, um, yeah, when. It doesn't, in a way, I don't think it feels like when you say to somebody, you know, we're going out in the garden every day. Uh, I, I think of it, there's no actual line between mm. us and the garden. It's the sort of like the same thing. It's like part of yourself at this stage. We've been making the garden for 35 years and it reflects all of our mistakes, growth, everything, you know, inspirations, passions. Um, and so we don't make that distinction so much between we're going out into the garden the way you might normally in the language of that as just it's part of here. It's part of the house. It's part of the life that's lived here. Um, the Inca Tumper book is the 20th between the two of us book or play that we have made in the 35 years we've been here. And all of those, I think, are an expression both of the garden, the house and our life together. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and the timing of this book is quite interesting. You know, Kiltumper seems to me to, and your garden seem to me to be quite quiet and remote, a uh, very rural area. But looming in the book, almost like a villain, is uh, our proposed wind engines. And when the book opens, they're going to be placed directly behind your house. So it gives the writing, you know, a huge amount of urgency in terms of what's going on in your own lives, but also there's a lot of urgency in the world as you come to write this book. Yes, well, I think I think there is definitely that sense that Lucy spoke of, of endangered, a sense of an endangered landscape and change. And there's also sort of a sense of what she talked about in relation to Oliver Goldsmith um, and the awareness of the exploitation of landscape. Um, so both Person, on a personal level, we felt endangered. We've been here a long time and Chris was very ill with cancer. So we felt it was important, I think, to sort of um, make note of, sort of try to put down a mark and say, well, what have we been doing for the last 35 years? But as well as that, the west of Ireland, the part of the west of Ireland that we live in um, is undergoing probably its greatest change since the coming of electricity with the arrival of the wind turbines. And the general sense that when the minister says we're going to have 70% more wind turbines, the question that is generally not asked of is where are they to go? Because the answer is generally understood to be in the countryside. And it struck me when I saw on a planning application and I read into the planning and the um, sort of reasoning for where wind turbines should be set, the idea that there was, in planner speak, areas of high scenic value and areas of low scenic value, which seemed to me to sort of draw an invisible line between essentially countryside and parkland. And uh, we live in an area of low scenic value. And that got me in the heart because uh, if this is a place we love. 
And we and have so, we have a forest. Yes. We oh. have oak and ash and pine, and we have a blanket bog. I think it must yes. be a blanket bog. Yeah. Connor, you'll have to come visit yes. and tell us. We need Connor to come visit anyway to just look at birds. Yes. I think help us identify. Um, yeah, it's marvelous. Sorry, Zoe. No, I mean that there's a huge sense of threat then to you and your garden. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, 500 meters from your bedroom window is rather close. It's a sort of War of the Worlds landing. Yeah, and it, and it it's really um, articulated so well in the book in terms of that personal um, threat that you feel to your space and and the, and the life you've created. Actually, Niall, you're going to read a section for us from the book. Yes. Um, I'll read just this page here. Um, now, to be clear, Chris is the real gardener. She started the garden in the rain of our first April here in 1985 and has been out in it ever since. Being in rural West Clare and living the quiet way we do, some days meeting no other person, it is a garden seen by few. So it is not grown and cared for with the goal of display. It is simply the natural extension of our living here and as close as we get to having a relationship with the earth, not the one with a capital E, not the grand, vast, ungraspable wholeness of the thing that steel turbines are said to be saving, but the portion of mud, clay and stone that live with us. It is certainly true that at this stage, from all the weeding, feeding, seeding and planting in it, Chris knows each individual pocket of the garden. There must be some essential human goodness in this, in the idea that this parcel of ground has been in some small or large way enriched by our living on it, and probably in the exact same measure as it has enriched us. I mean this not in a high-minded or self-satisfying way, but just the fact of tending the ground feeding the worms, I suppose, and that there is something absolutely right in this, and that the smallness of it, the most local of localities, the garden in Kiltumper, is enough world, enough birth for a lifetime. I stand for what I stand on, is a quote of Wendell Berry's. And maybe because of the turbines coming, all the traffic and change that will happen just outside the hedge, I am aware of being turned more than ever to the world inside the hedge and allow myself to adopt the belief that for us, that is the world that counts. Thank you so much, uh, Niall. I think what becomes really apparent in Kiltumper, um, you know, it, it underlines the kind of sacrifices that we are all going to be faced with. And they're writ large. They're kind of shadowing over your garden and your way of life. Um, and that change is being born by you personally at the moment um, and how you articulated in the book through the prism of the garden has been is a really valuable experience as a reader um, to to get a sense of that and it, it sort of reinforces for me the difficulties that how much change is going to come for all of us and what kind of thought needs to be put into that change um, into what to protect or preserve and the balance um, you know as we search for some sort of uh, you know, low carbon future, um, and and you're 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 witnessing that at the moment. 
Yes, I, I think so. There, there is that uh, quote. I think it's how much green earth do we have to lose to make the world to make the earth go green? There is that. Um, it's a very, very difficult uh, equation to balance. I think, um, and certainly in our experience of it, has been uh, has been a, sen a sense of, of feeling we're in an, an endangered place, um, and that it is it is changing. You know, our roads in in the course of the year that we write about in the garden. The diggers are outside, just outside the hedge, straightening, taking all the bends out of the roads to, for the transportation of the turbines. The stone walls that are there since before Chris's great-great-grandfathers are demolished in an afternoon. Uh, just, just for the one day that the turbines have to come in because the roads, which, which seem to me such a natural expression of the life of the landscape built into the slope and bend and you know, actual gradation of, of the way people moved along the landscape and then to have them completely flattened, any dips have to be taken out and it has to be made a flat, wide, you know, clean road surface for the one day transportation. And so watching that just outside uh, where we've been trying to plant and, you know, in, keep the hedgerows going and all that, mind, minding essentially that piece of ground uh, is, was, was kind of shocking. And the, the character of the place has changed entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the book, uh, well, it's about your garden. It's about the wind turbines arriving. Um, but there's also a personal thread running through it, Christine, of, uh, as now mentioned, your experience of cancer. Um, and, and you talk of the garden as uh, uh, in the book in terms of being a place of safety. Did working in the garden and writing about it help you manage that physical, those physical and emotional um, effects of illness? Yes, I think so, because it's, for me, the garden is um, like when we said earlier, we're going out to the garden. We don't say we're going out to meditate or <laughs> going out to exercise, but we're doing all that when, when we go outside. And I think um, for me, it was a way of working things out, uh, being physical, being meditative, um, and it's healing, you know, and we have vegetables as well and some herbs and but we do have a lot of flowers and there's something about um watching all that grow and minding it tending for it and then it gives back to you the like the delphiniums the color of tall blue delphiniums if the wind doesn't knock them over it hmm. gives back to you you know the the colors the, uh, like uh, an anchusa yeah. is just so deeply blue and um yeah, I think it definitely helped me. Um, and writing about it, it was fun to write, um, you know, between Niall's last book, This Is Happiness, he wasn't ready to write an, his second, his next novel, his 10th mm. novel. And this was a really good segue to what was we were experiencing that year with the turbines, with my last year of cancer surveillance, as I call it. Um, it was really good to work on something together. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope you're doing well now health-wise. Yes, I am. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Niall, is is the at some point uh, a certain point in the book you you realize that the garden is not a distraction; it's actually fuel for you. Yes, absolutely, and I think I think partly. Um, so I I grew up in Dublin and, and lived in suburban Dublin. Um, and I grew up on a, on a and she grew up in a dirt road, dirt road. In, in Westchester. So <laughs> so it's a kind of strange thing that I've I've come I I came to nature through literature. I came to nature through 
so it, when I'm in school and I'm reading, let's say, Stony Grey Soil by Patrick Kavanagh, I had no experience of what it would, what, what Stony Grey Soil was or what it actually was like. Or when I came, when I went to the Strogan Library and borrowed a Seamus Heaney uh, North, let's say, um, I had no idea how the, 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 that that was language with the dirt on it. And um, it wasn't until gradually you become actually working and responsible for a piece of ground um, that you begin to sort of, I, so I approached it backwards, if you like. So rather than being in nature and being inspired then to write the literature, um, I came at it the other way around. And so uh, my, my engagement with it then has, has become more and more physical with nature. And I've become more and more concerned in writing fiction to create a sense of place and that that became more important. Whereas in Four Letters of Love, first novel, the sense of place is almost entirely imagined. But as I've gone forward, let's say this is happiness, it's, a, it's very concrete, real, I can see it, I could walk the street, I could, you know, I can smell it. It's much, much more concrete. And I think that comes from just simply living the life we've lived in this space. Yeah, it's uh, it's observation and it's study and it's it's working its way back into your into your writing and it's very apparent in that. Um, I, I think it's very interesting what you've done and uh, in terms of weaving your observations of the natural world um, and interweaving it with memoir and personal experience and stories. And I think that's something that actually seems to be a, a, a form that readers are responding to um, very well these days. And um, Lucy you know what does that sort of personal experience offer the reader when you can read about the natural world but you can also hear about uh, and follow an individual in in a story or in a piece of uh, writing well I think it does show and I mean you know so interesting to hear Niall and Christine talking there I mean it does show the way in which our engagement with the natural world is embedded in all aspects of our life and so that idea, I love that image of there being no boundary between you and your garden, if you like, that mm. sense in which it's not, a, you know, a space you kind of go into and leave. It's actually something that is part of you. You know, it's you've internalized it, if you like. Um, and I think that's something that's coming forward in people's writing is that sense that it's not about writing one book, you know, with a, a theme of natural history or something and then going back to writing other things. It's about how those connect, all those aspects of people's lives and experiences connect. And so I think, you know, the way people are beginning to work in hybrid forms very often. So, you know, maybe the personal essay or maybe experimental poetry and so on that opens up form and allows it to kind of draw more different kinds of experience in. Um, you know, it's less traditional perhaps in, in its formal approach. I think that really does help us to see how nature is part of everything we do, you know, in a sense, everything we think and feel as well. And uh, in terms of, you know, the, you, you've really anchored Niall and Christine, you've anchored the reader so well in a real place and those personal experiences. Um, Connor, it's amazing to have something like In Kiltumper, which brings us right into, you know, 2020 as a record of small things in one place, our own backyard. And I think that's something that we've gotten very used to during the period of lockdown and restricted movement over the last 18 months. Um, you know, our own backyard and people seem to have a greater interest in the natural world. Um, do you think that's true to say, or is that something we're just hearing all the time? No, I think it is true to say. I think um, 
uh, one of the benefits and, and as as like lockdown has been hard for me as it has been I'm sure for everyone else on this call and everyone listening to this but uh, one of the benefits of lockdown I think is that it's um, helped people to engage or encourage people to engage with the natural world around them um, much more than they would have had previously um, speaking from experience I've um, we, you know without being able to go on fancy uh, wild wildlife watching trips I've been kind of uh, forced to content myself with the wildlife in my own back garden and, and I've gained a much deeper appreciation of that as a result so um, I do think there is more of an appreciation of wildlife there's certainly more of an appreciation of the plight of wildlife I think the popularity of growing um, plants for pollinators seems to be skyrocketing which is great to see I think um, people who aren't wouldn't otherwise be interested in conservation are realizing that this is something they can do and that it doesn't have to run contrary to having a very beautiful garden. You can you can have a beautiful garden that is a haven for all kinds of wildlife by, for instance, growing um, flower, wildflowers or not even native flowers, but um, species that are very helpful to, to nature. So I do think there is more of an awareness, which is great. And um, hopefully that will ensure that we have, you know, nature to enjoy for generations to come. Um, and I like that, you know, there's a lot of bleak predictions out there um, and we're all aware of them, but I like that kind of hopeful note. Um, coming up in the podcast in a few weeks time, Niall and Christine have uh, written two short entries for us and you can hear them on shelf marks on the Royal Irish Academy website, but also wherever you get your own podcasts. And they're kind of in the a similar kind of um, format to In Kiltumper. Um, Niall and Christine, what you know, what do you, what role then do writers have in kind of creating awareness and an understanding and an empathy for the natural world? Well, um, I'm always slow to uh, say that, you know, to, that writers have a, have a responsibility or a duty or something like that. But in the same way that I'm aware that I came in a general sense, I came to the West of Ireland first through literature. Um, I, I hope that if if I can write better, if I can write more accurately, if I can capture uh, the things that I see and smell in around me more truly, um, that the reader then will somehow enter that world through the page and ultimately want to put down the page and go out into the world. So they, one of the things that I've been thinking of lately because we've had this experience of the book just having come out and it's out in America let's say and people reading the book who, are, who have never stepped foot in our garden but feel that they want to come to the garden because they've entered it imaginatively um, so there is a sort of wonderful completion of a cycle in a way between when you read about a place so for example when I first read Singh's Aran Islands and I wanted to go to the Aran Islands even though Singh had long departed from the Aran Islands uh, I had visited the Aran Islands through through his language and through his his that book he wrote about the Aran Islands so um, similarly the you know the Island Man or some of those some of those older texts that I read even even uh, Prager the way the way that I went that that which I read when I was maybe 18. Um, so I think there is a wonderful, there's a wonderful connection between reader and writer to landscape. Um, that that is just what I feel is, I don't feel it's a responsibility of a writer. I think a writer's only responsibility is to write better. Um, but I think and, in, sorry. And what we're, the nature writing or the memoir writing yes. is to be honest in, yeah. in, your, in yeah. your experience, honest and genuine in your experience 
to what you're what you're living with. Yes. And that's, yeah. So um, on that note, look, I think uh, thank you so much to all of you for joining us here for the first episode of Shelf Marks. Uh, Lucy Collins' anthology, uh, The Irish Poet and the Natural World, is published by Cork University Press. And Conor W. O'Brien's books are Ireland Through Birds and Life in Ireland, both published by Merriam Press. Thanks to Derv Lacrotti and Declan Brennan for the readings. And Niall Williams and Christine Breen's book In Kiltumper is out just now and is published by Bloomsbury. And Shelf Marks will be back with its first guest writer in a couple of weeks and I'll leave you with a quote from Mariah Edgeworth um, now she's referencing how she deals with pain but I think it fits very well for this discussion and she says nature knows best and she says roar so roar <laughs> thank you everybody thank you Zoe thank you thank you for listening to Shelf Marks The Peninsula from 100 Poems by Seamus Heaney was reproduced with permission of Faber and Faber and Ivan Boland's Limits One from Code was read with thanks to publisher Carcanet. Shelf Marks was funded by the Arts Council Literature Project Award.